Well, afternoon, everybody. Um, we're in for a, a heavy and difficult passage uh, this afternoon, um, but hopefully I think a good one. Um, it's my privilege to bring God's Word to you this afternoon. I'm Nathan. If we haven't met, if you're new here, welcome. I extend my welcome to you. Um, before I start, I'm going to pray for us as we go into this passage, um, and then we'll see what God has to say for us today. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we know that you are good and loving, and we thank you for who you are. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word, um, even the passages that are difficult for us to understand. Lord, help us to understand today what you're doing through your word, uh, through the story of the Exodus, through the story of the golden calf and the people turning against you. Lord, would you help us to see the hope that is in this passage? Um, would you help us to turn to your son, Jesus? as we follow him and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yeah, today we're in Exodus 32. Um, this is a really well-known passage. A lot of you would know the story of the golden calf. Um, there's lots of things in here that you probably won't find in the, the children's Bible version, um, as we just heard them read. There's some heavy things, and this is truly a tragic story. Um, it's a tragic story of the people of God turning their backs on him and worshipping an idol. And you might have looked at the front of your outlines, as Gary pointed out, there's a little photo there, and it's not just a description of Gary's week. It's a picture of this hopeless little cat hanging on a branch that's about to snap. And you might think, what does this have to do with this story of Exodus? Well, please let me explain. As we read this story in Exodus, it feels like this this whole story of the people of God is just hanging on a branch that's about to snap. It feels like it's about to end. It's about to be all over. The people of God are on their last straws. The whole plan of God to save a people to himself feels like it's been jeopardized in this one chapter. As I was reading this week, it's funny, some people think that this is the center of the whole second half of Exodus. This is the focal point of the second half of the book. And we think, why focus on such a hopeless and desperately tragic story? Well, I think there's more than just hopelessness in this chapter. It's a tra chapter of tragedy, of course, but I think there's hope in the hopelessness. And hopefully today we're going to see glimpses of that and we're going to think about what that means for us as we seek to follow Jesus today and what it meant for the Israelites back as they sought to follow God and turned from him eventually. So let's jump into Exodus 32. We're going to start at verse 1. And the first thing we read is when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. And the first thing we have to ask is, well, how long is so long? How long has Moses been away? Well, I want to take you back to chapter 24. You can turn there with me. This gives us a bit of context to the chapter that we're looking at today. And we kind of skipped over this chapter when we were working through Exodus a few weeks ago, so it's good to have a look at it now. And in this chapter, we see that God confirms his covenant with the people. It's this wonderful chapter where the people of God make their promises to God. God makes his promises to the people. In verse 3, we see that Moses tells the people everything the Lord has commanded, and the people reply in unison, everything the Lord has said we will do. So Moses writes down the whole book of the covenant. They worship God, and then in verse 7 again, we read that Moses took the book of the covenant, 
He read it to the people and they all responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So in this chapter, the covenant is confirmed. And then in verse 9, we get this beautiful picture where the 70 elders, along with Moses, Aaron, and his two sons, they go up to meet God on the mountain, and they have a meal with him there. If you look at verse 9, it says, Moses and Aaron, Nahab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright as the sky, this picture of God. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. The leaders of God's people are having a meal with God. It's this beautiful picture. And when they come back down the mountain, God calls to Moses and Joshua to go up to receive the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone as a picture of permanence and confirmation of the covenant that God has made with the people. And then we read in verse 14 that Moses said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in the dispute can go to them. So Moses is going away, and he's left Aaron there to take care of the people and told them, if there's any disputes, come to Aaron. And then down in verse 18, we read that Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So that's the background of this passage. How long is so long? Well, it's been 40 days. And last week we heard about what was happening during those 40 days. We heard about where God was giving Moses the commands to build a house for him, to build a tabernacle where God could live with his people. Up on the mountain, there was this real high point of God living with his people. Last week we looked at God and his plans, and this week we're going to turn our attention to the plans of the people. This week, we're going to look at what's happening at the bottom of the mountain in those 40 days. And as I worked through this passage this week, I couldn't help but think that this is probably one of the saddest and most tragic chapters in the Bible. But hopefully, through the sadness, through the hopelessness and the sin, we can find some hope today. So let's jump back to chapter 32. And begin the story at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so longing coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now we've seen it's been 40 days for the people of Israel. It's taken them 40 days to turn their back on their God, to turn the back, their back on the covenant that they just all proclaimed, we will obey everything the Lord has said. But remember, Aaron is there, and Moses said to Aaron, wait for me to come back. If there's any problems, you can deal with it, Aaron. So let's see what Aaron says in verse 2. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off all their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, 
who brought you up out of Egypt. Aaron takes up an offering to build an idol. If you were here last week, you would remember that God told his people to take up an offering so that he could build a house among them, the tabernacle. Gold, silver, jewels. Nor here that wonderful picture has been flipped as Aaron takes up an offering to build an idol, a worthless calf. And remember, this is all whilst God's glory is on the mountain right beside them. God's presence is there with them. Back in chapter 24, it says in verse 17, To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. God is right there if they just looked up and looked at him. But it's been 40 days, the people doubt God, and they break his covenant. There's been 31 chapters of Exodus about God saving his people. And it's taken 40 days and six verses to unravel all of it. And what's worse is they start worshipping this idol calf. In verse 5 we read, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next, next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. This is such a bleak picture for the people of Israel. And it's unclear, it's debated whether or not they're thinking that this calf is God, is Yahweh the one and only God, or they've made a God that is something else. You might see a footnote in your Bible in verse 4 where it says, these are your gods. The footnote says that this could also be, this is your God, Israel. The Hebrew word is unclear if it's a singular God or plural gods. Are the people breaking the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. Or are they breaking the second commandment? You shall not make an idol. It seems here that they're celebrating a festival to the Lord, and the word there, Lord, is that Yahweh word. But it's unclear. But I think the details of this doesn't matter too much because the what is clear here is that the covenant has been broken. God has given the people the rules that he wants them to follow. And it takes them 40 days to turn their back on God, turn their back on Moses, create an idol and start worshipping it. And I think the bleakness of this picture is most clearly seen in the last verse of this chapter. If you flick to the last verse, verse 35 we read there, and the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. See, it was God's enemies at the start of Exodus that God was striking with plagues, the Egyptians, the enemies of God and his people. And now it's the people of God, the Israelites, who are being struck with a plague. The Israelites have become God's enemies through what they've done. This is a truly, truly bleak picture in the first six verses. So God responds in verse 7, and we see he responds with a righteous anger towards the people's sin. It says in verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. 
Did you notice what God said there? He didn't say, my people I brought out of Egypt. No, he said, your people, Moses. These aren't my people anymore. They're your people, Moses. Then in verse seven, uh, verse 9, sorry, he says, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I might destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. And this is a massive moment in the story of the Bible and the story of Exodus. It seems like God is ready to give up on his people and start fresh with Moses. There are echoes of Genesis and Abraham here where Abraham was the father of this great nation, Israel, and now God is ready to wipe them out and start again, start a new nation with Moses. But as we'll see, this isn't the end of the road for Israel. No, there's a turning point that comes, and the turning point comes where Moses steps in. We see Moses step in in verse 11. And it's a turning point to the whole story of Exodus and a turning point in the whole story of the Bible. We read in verse 11 that Moses says, but Moses sought, oh, sorry, it says that Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? See what Moses does? He turns it back on God. These are your people, God. Why should your anger burn against your people? Moses pushes back against God and remembers, uh, reminds him that these people are his. These are the people he brought and promised to deliver to the promised land. Now, does Moses need to convince God of something that maybe God forgot? I don't think so. I think here we have an example of a right response to God from Moses. Moses doesn't push into the hope of the people getting any better. He doesn't even rely on himself about being a good leader. No, Moses pushes straight to God at the source and reminds God of the promises he's made. Look at what he says in verse 13. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and I, it will be their inheritance forever. Moses is convinced that God keeps his promises, so he is unwavering in his faith and trust in God. See, when God says, Moses, leave me so I can destroy the people, there's a decision for Moses to make. Does he leave or does he stay and try to make a difference? And we see that this display of faith from Moses turns the whole story around. In verse 14, God relents and he doesn't destroy the people. And it must be said that there's still going to be consequences for sin. We heard them read earlier and we'll look at them later. But here's a critical point where Moses intervenes for the people. Moses is the people's representative to God and he's doing his job. And he's also going to be God's representative to the people. That's what we see next. Moses becomes God's representative to the people. Moses goes back down the mountain with the tablets in hand. And if you flip to verse 19, he arrives at the bottom of the mountain. 
It says in verse 19, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Moses is being God's representative. His same right, the same righteous anger that God had that burned against his people's sin. Now it says Moses' anger burns against the people. And in this section we see Moses stepping up into the role of God's representative to the people, the role that he's played throughout all of Exodus. He smashes the tablets as a sign of the breaking of the covenant that the people have broken. And in verse 20, he burns the idol and makes the people drink it, the ashes of the, the idol. He makes them drink it as a sign of judgment and ownership of sin. It's a bit like a picture of a parent whose kid swears too much and they wash their mouth out with soap, right? It's a bit of an ownership. You're going to drink this and you're going to understand what you've done. Moses makes the people aware of their sin and he doesn't want to stand for it because he stands for God as his representative. Then Moses confronts the leader of this whole operation, Aaron, in verse 21, and we get Aaron's response in verse 22. Look at it with me there. Aaron says this, Do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They say to me, they said to me, Make us gods who will go before us and as for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, Whatever, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Aaron is full of excuses here. There is no ownership for sin on Aaron's part whatsoever. These, it was the people, you know, they're evil. They just gave me the stuff. I threw it in the fire and a calf came out. I don't know what happened. But we know that wasn't the case, don't we? Back in verse 4, we read that Aaron took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Aaron's not willing to take responsibility for his sin. And it reminds us a bit of people in, our, in the Bible who continue to have this attitude towards sin. They don't want to take responsibility for sin. It starts right back in the Garden of Eden. Remember when God comes to Adam and Eve after they've sinned and asks them what they've done? What's Adam's response? Oh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It was her fault. And then Eve, when God comes to Eve, oh, the serpent, it, it deceived me and I ate it. It wasn't my fault. Aaron sits in a long line of people in the Bible who won't take responsibility for their sin. Excuse after excuse. It was, it was the people. They made me do it. The calf just magically appeared out of the fire. So as God judged Adam and Eve back in the garden for their sin, we see Moses as God's representative about to judge the people for their sin too. In verse 26, we read that Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Now, this is one last chance for the people. Moses is standing saying, if you're on God's side, come to me. And only, sadly, the Levites come to him. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, only one is willing to stand with God. So Moses passes on 
what the Lord's judgment is for sin to the Levites. And they too now stand set apart from the rest of God's people as God's representatives, standing against their brothers and sisters and friends. And the saddest part of the story is their first job is to pass on God's judgment. And they kill 3,000 of their own brothers and sisters and neighbours. So the sin of God's people has consequences. Moses is doing the best he can. But sin is sin. And sin, when it's exposed, leads to death. They've had chances to stand with God time and time again through Exodus. But they choose to actively turn their back on God, on his representative Moses, and choose their own way. This is truly one of the most tragic pictures we see in the Bible. But as the story comes to an end, we see what might just be a glimpse of hope in this hopelessness. In verse 30, we read an astounding thing. In verse 30, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now these are remarkable words of Moses. His anger burns against the people and their sin. And yet the next day, he's willing to acknowledge that sin is great and to do whatever he can to atone for that sin. Now atonement, if you don't know, it literally means to cover over something. Moses knows the sin is great. And he's seen the Lord's anger burn against sin in the past. And he wants to cover it to protect the people of God from God's wrath. So Moses goes back up the mountain. And in verse 31 we read, Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. How does Moses want to cover the people's sin? He offers himself as a sacrifice. Like a soldier who's willing to jump and cover a grenade in a battle to protect his fellow soldiers, Moses is willing to take the hit to save his people. This is where we see a glimpse of hope in this story of hopelessness. Maybe this one man's righteousness can cover the sins of the people. Maybe he can save them. But it's only a glimpse because if we look at the story in verse 33, God replies, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But God then does send an angel before the people. But again, he says, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sins. And he brings a plague on his people and it brings an end to the story. So this story, this centerpiece of Exodus, feels like a hopeless story. It feels like a story of people and their sin, turning their backs on God. A leader, Moses, who tries to do everything he can to turn the people back to God, but he can't in the end save them. And I think we want to sit with the hopelessness of this story. I think this chapter stands as a warning to all of us about our tendency to turn away from God. 
We have a tendency to put our hope in things other than God, to put our hope in idols that we create, rather than putting our hope in the God who made all things. So we need to hear the warning, don't turn your back on God, because judgment is the consequence. But whilst I want us to feel the weight of sin and hopelessness in this passage, I also want us to focus on that little glimpse of hope that we get through the picture of Moses. See, Moses is a mediator between the people and God. He represents the people to God and he represents God to the people. Moses is angry at the sin of the people, just as God was angry at their sin. He brings righteous judgment on the people for their sin and he represents the righteous God who hates sin. But as he represents the people, he also seeks the Lord's favour in response to their sin. He pushes into God's character and by the end of the story, he's willing to give up his own life to save his people. Moses is a righteous mediator between God and the people in this story. He is the glimmer of hope that we see. And it's clear that the people need a mediator. That is going to be their only hope for salvation. But it's also clear at the end of the story that Moses himself can't cover the people's sin because he too is sinful. So I'm sure some of you who have been Christians for a while, you know where I'm going with this. In this glimpse of Moses, this glimpse of hope in this story, we get a glimpse that is fully seen in what Jesus has done for us. It's in Jesus that we have the mediator that we truly need. A mediator who is worthy to give his life in place of other people in order to cover over their sins. Whose perfect life is going to be offered as a sacrifice to protect us all from God's judgment. In Hebrews 9, we read these wonderful words. In verse 14, it says, How much more then with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself, unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. That is the glimmer of hope in the hopelessness of this story. And in many ways, this story is our story. As Gary shared, there's a sense of hopelessness we have as we look at our world, as we think about ourselves and how we rebel against God. We've seen the hopeless situation that humanity is in when they turn their backs on God. And in some sense, we have all turned our backs on God, turned our attention to idols, put our hope in things that are made, made by our own hands, maybe not a golden calf, but maybe something that we create. This is a hopeless, hopeless story, and in many ways, it's our hopeless story. And we have to sit with that hopelessness and look to the things in our lives that we need to stop putting our hope in, the idols in our lives that are not worth our time. But that's hard. The Israelites only had 40 days until Moses returned from the mountain. For us as Christians, we've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. So is there times when we get distracted, waiting, 
thinking, gee, this Jesus guy's been gone a long time. I haven't seen God for a while. Maybe I'll put my hope in something else. Well, I think today we need to focus on that glimmer of hope in this story. And this side of the cross, this side of Jesus, we can see more clearly what that glimmer glimmer of hope was pointing to. It was pointing to Jesus, our mediator, the one who can stand between us and God, the one who can push into God's character because he himself knows God intimately, and the one who ultimately can atone for our sins, can cover our sins to save us from the judgment that we should all face. See, our hearts are idol factories. We love to make idols. We love to turn our backs on God. But today I want to turn our attention back to God. May we guard ourselves against this inner sin that always wants to turn our back on God and forget that he's here. We heard last week he lives right here with us. He is always here and he always has been. So guard yourselves as you think about putting your hope in something else and turn to the one that we can truly place our hope in. That is Jesus, our true and one and only mediator. How about you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we know without Jesus we would be in a hopeless situation, stuck, dead in our sin. But Lord, we are blown away by the truth that you would send your Son to stand between us and you and to present us blameless before you as our God. Lord, we are sinful people, and in many ways we can't change that, Lord. We are sorry for our sin. Help us to turn from it and turn to you. And will we always put our trust, not in ourselves, but in you, Lord, and in your Son, Jesus. We pray all this in his mighty name. Amen.